Shana Klein looks at art as a window into American history and politics. You will look at her five fruits of empire in a whole new way on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Thanks for joining us today on Tip of the Tongue. Today we're talking to Shana Klein. She is the author of Fruits of Empire, a wonderful, wonderful book. In addition, she's an art history professor at Kent State University, so she really knows what she's talking about. She has written a very, very readable book, so don't think you're gonna be reading some deep, it's not that it isn't deep, but a deep kind of hard to slog through academic tome. This is really, really very readable, fabulous illustrations, which you would expect from an art history professor, and um, you really enjoy it. So welcome, Shana. Thanks so much, Liz. I really appreciate the invitation, and I love your introduction to the book because I make it a point to create a book that is very accessible in language. A lot of times, art history textbooks and survey books are really weighed down in this academic speak, and that is not my mission. My mission is to make art history accessible to all, so it really uh, reads in a way that anyone can understand. Well, you, you managed to do it. It was really very, very readable. I have tons of questions for you, though. So first of all, I want to know, have you always been interested in food? Obviously, you're interested in art history. But have you always been interested in that intersection of food and art history? And what is fascinating about that to you? So I was born and raised in Santa Monica, California, which is like the heaven for farmer's markets. So I grew up around a lot of fresh food and, and food, especially fruit, grows very easily in California. So it was always kind of in the, the background landscape of my life, but nothing really clicked for me in terms of food and my academic interests until I was in a graduate program at the University of New Mexico. That's where I got my PhD. And I took a class on Central American art history, which is rarely ever taught in the curriculum in the United States. And I learned about this one contemporary artist in Guatemala. His name is Moises Barrio. And his work is actually on the cover of my book. And what he does is he would go around to Banana Republic clothing stores in the United States and paint their facades to discuss how Americans often glamorize and romanticize Banana Republics when they have caused so much political devastation, economic instability, and more. And it got me thinking how something as simple and innocent as the banana is really political. And things just kind of clicked, and I started to look more at images of food from my time period of interest, which is the late 19th century. And I just saw the politics of food and art everywhere. It was like unavoidable. Okay. So now I want to ask you about this book in particular. So you've chosen five fruits, and um, I 
think that the the fruits are are all beautiful so that isn't really the issue the the issue i have is how did you select those five and because i was thinking of other foods other fruits that certainly could have been included that you didn't include that would have a lot of political implications and in particular for example very the modern the modern tomato and all of the, the Florida issues and other other states too, but the how it came to this culmination in Florida. Is it because you found more images of these fruits or how, how did you make this selection? I, I The whole time I was reading the book, that's what I was saying. Well, how did yeah. you pick this fruit? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's such a great question. So it came from a lot of close looking. I looked at so many artworks, paintings after paintings, World's Fair exhibits. I looked at silverware objects, souvenir objects, and I chose some of the fruits that were the most visible, but even more importantly, I chose the fruits that were the most obviously political, that had the most straightforward connections to national expansion, to ideas about racial formation and attitudes about race in this country. And so I landed on grapes, oranges, watermelons, bananas, and pineapples because five foods had the most obvious, were the most obvious platform for artists and viewers to discuss national identity. And I'm looking at a time period between 1865 and around, you know, 19, I'd say like 50. This is a time period of intense national expansion when fruit cultivation in a lot of tropical regions speaks to larger ideas about expanding the United States into tropical territories. And so while an apple, for instance, is not included in my book, that doesn't mean it's any less political. It's just not as relevant politically to national expansion in the time period that I'm studying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I end the book saying, I want this to be a platform for other scholars to look at tomatoes, avocados, you know, foods that are also politically charged and you know, have a lot of relevance just maybe in other contexts and other time periods. And that, you know, the scholarship should obviously not end with say the pineapple. Okay, so I, I, I respect that. I wanna tell you that the images that you have selected are just really wonderful. How did you discover all of them? I mean, you couldn't have all of them in your head when you started. So how did you, how did you go about finding them? Yeah, it was a really hard feat. I chose a difficult topic. A lot of my colleagues in art history, they write uh, monographs on one artist or, you know, one time period. My scholarship spans time periods and disciplines and artists and food objects. It's Which not is why it's so exciting, by the <laughs> yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's also, it's really unwieldy as a researcher, but it has allowed me to become a kind of master of all these different topics. But it started from really connecting with the art objects that I was seeing in museums, that I was reading in books, and then trying to look more at the visual culture of the foods that I was analyzing. So I looked at a lot of cookbooks, too, and horticultural manuals, mm -hmm. uh, really indebted to the fellowships that I've had at the Smithsonian, the American Antiquarian Society, Winterter, Huntington Library. A lot of these places have collected amazing advertisements and photographs and crate labels from the 19th century, early 20th century. So I kind of let the visual images and the objects guide me in terms of what I was finding and often finding that these objects were repeated and were collected in a lot of different areas of the country. So that guided my research. Okay, well then, 
there there was uh, definitely a logic to putting that together. How did you get interested in this particular subject of, of expansionism? Yeah, that's, so that's, also, not, that's not the natural art history subject. <laughs> no, it's not. You're absolutely right. And I'm really proud to come from the University of New Mexico because for my PhD program, you not only learn the canonical works of art and the traditional canon of art history, you also learn what has been written outside of that canon and the voices and the artists and the people that don't get the attention, particularly artists of color and objects that speak to the voices who have been historically marginalized. And so I've always been interested in kind of reading outside the picture plane and analyzing who is not represented in this work of art. Who are we not representing when we're teaching the subject, when we're doing research on these subjects. And so recovering those marginalized voices is something that I learned in my program at the University of New Mexico and something that I feel is really important to bring to art history, which, you know, like we said in the beginning of this podcast, is really inaccessible to a lot of people. It is built on an intimidating language. It is built for people who have the means to visit museums and buy those admission tickets. This project for me, this book, is another avenue for me to kind of use our history as a means for social justice. It would really make a wonderful exhibit. I mean, that's what I was thinking while I was reading the book, because I thought, oh, this really, this is a, so visual. And just as my thought of collecting objects to tell a story, the, these images really tell a story and the narrative would be so obvious if you were looking at all of the paintings and, and other images all together. I, I, I love that about it. I thought, okay, where, who has a big enough space to, to tell this story? <laughs> totally, Liz. And you know, let me just like plug in here that I would welcome any opportunity to create an exhibit around this. We had Art and Appetite at the Art Institute of Chicago in 2012. And blockbuster hit an exhibition around food and art it did so well and I think that the public really responds well to images of food and they understand really clearly how visual images of food they communicate these stories that are not all cheerful right that they're about kind of darker sides of our history and about inequalities and so I think that it would lend itself really nicely and also a timely exhibit with the cultural landscape of what's happening right now in the moment and also your comment reminded me that oftentimes when people read my book, they say, these images are so lovely. Like I'd love to buy a print of this and hang it in my dining room. But in some ways that, that, that misses the point and it targets the point, right? Because these images are so seductive. Mm -hmm. They're so beautiful and they're so alluring. But a lot of times these images have uh, kind of racist, really racist connotations brimming underneath that are not as immediately available to our eyes because we're, we're seduced by the, the visual image first. Well, and of course, it's representing something that is so sensuous and that we all know and can identify with. So you go there, you go to the fruit and the taste and whatever, instead of thinking about the larger environment that it represents. Yeah, and that was one of the most fun parts about this project. It's not all doom and gloom in this book, you know, that I also really enjoy talking about how artists relish in portraying these delicious foods and trying to elicit the, the Pavlovian responses of their viewers and trying mm -hmm. to get this 
look as tasty as they are. Right. Oh, no, it, it's uh, definitely an ode to some of those really, really talented artists who can make that evocative leap so that you feel like, I just have to reach into that picture and, and I can take a bite out of this. Right. There's one artist, Andrew John Henry Way. He was the most famous great painter of the 19th century. And everyone remarked when they saw his paintings that they wanted to kind of leap out and, and touch a, pluck a grape from his painting. They thought it was so real and true to life. I was particularly interested in the banana section because, of course, New Orleans is so connected to the fruit company and all of the, the fruit because of our port and, of course, because the United Fruit was here. <laughs> I, I, I think that the banana workers and the, the longshoremen and all of those people who were just in New Orleans, not even talking about what was happening in the countries where the bananas were being grown, is, you know, even that part of the story is really kind of riveting. And also, there are banana trees all throughout New Orleans in our backyards because people brought bananas back and every time there were visits to these countries, people would bring back a specimen tree. And our, our climate is such that sometimes we do go several years. You know, the banana takes two years to fruit. So right. we can kind of say, oh, well, the banana's not going to fruit this year. So that means we had a, a, a freeze during the past year, which, you know, makes it have to, the cycle start over again. But I have banana trees in my backyard and we eat bananas off our trees, you know, and uh, That's amazing. we are definitely connected to the banana. And the other thing that is kind of interesting is, especially in the beginning when bananas hadn't been bred to ship well and all of that sort of thing. They were just bananas. This was before my time, so I'm, I'm not saying I remember this, but you can read about the wharves being littered with bananas that anybody could just go and take them home. So that meant that in New Orleans, even poor people could eat bananas. Whereas if you were in Maine or something like that, you know, having a banana was a really exotic big deal. But here it wasn't because you, you know, once the bananas couldn't be shipped anymore because they were too ripe, they were just discarded and left on the wharf for people to just come and, and take. Also rats and other things, but you know, it was something that made bananas accessible to people who wouldn't have been able to afford a banana someplace else. Yeah, that's right. That's incredible, first of all, that you have a banana tree in your backyard. I'm incredibly jealous. <laughs> but you're right to point out that there are levels of accessibility for the banana in the United States. So in New England or New York, there are a lot of paintings of people experiencing the banana for the first time and showing a lot of excitement because the banana was this foreign exotic object to them, as opposed to, you know, places further south like New Orleans. And I also tell my students that we need to study the histories, the food histories of New Orleans, of Mobile, Alabama. By Mobile, yeah. We're huge centers for food studies. It's not all happening in New York and New England, right? right. And a lot of my research, you know, looks at Hawaii, California, Florida, areas that have been historically overlooked. And New Orleans is another area that warrants a lot more investigation. 
because you're right that in that semi-tropical climate, bananas grew much more easily. However, the banana entrepreneurs of the early 20th century found that it was much cheaper and easier to create this larger corporation, basically, of shipping bananas from the Caribbean and areas in Central America, as opposed to growing it on a mass scale in, you know, the Southern United States. Oh, yeah. The Southern United States is, is not really warm enough to have a reliable crop because right. it, it's only semi-tropical. It's not tropical. So, yeah, that maybe, you know, maybe at the tip of Florida or something, but um, mm -hmm. even there, you don't have enough space. Uh, right. So it wouldn't, really wouldn't work. But you can tell that those bananas were made to survive hurricanes because the leaves shred so easily so that they kind of could be put together like a pom-pom with little shreds wow. on them. But it doesn't really affect the, the stalks and the base of the plant. And you can see that that is something that, that was made for a tropical environment. Yeah, and you know, I discovered a lot of images of not just the kind of yellow banana that we know today, even though we eat a different variety of banana than they did in the 19th century, but I discovered a lot of images of the red banana. Red bananas, yeah. So that was also exciting to see how, you know, artists were enlivened by the different species and colors of this fruit. Well, I mean, there is, bananas are like apples or whatever, you know, they're so many different kinds and so many different uses and we we just forget about it because we've reduced our banana choices so so radically just for who knows you know just political right. and economic reasons yeah yeah and i'm really depressed about that because i hear the gross michelle banana of the 19th century was so much tastier and sweeter and thicker and lush than the cavendish that we eat today Mm -hmm. So I get my hands on, you know, one of that, that kind of variety, but there's also a lot of anxiety about the Cavendish today and about it going away and becoming extinct. Because we've created this monoculture of bananas, it, it's dangerous. It might lead to the extinction of the banana that we eat today. Yeah, we, we tend to shoot ourselves in the foot in that way, you know. I think so. And then we wait until the very last minute. Even when people start to anticipate this may be a problem or something, we still don't do anything about I know. it. You're so right. People have been communicating this anxiety for decades now, and it'll probably be a last-minute endeavor to try to save the Cavendish. All right, so now I want to know what you're working on now. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So I am in a transition period. Now that the book is released, I have a little more freedom to work on a next topic. And I want to stay close to the food studies arena because it's been so good to me and it's something I'm really passionate about. And so I have two projects that are brimming. One of them is a topic on milk, particularly breast milk. But you are going still to food. That's yeah, it. I really think that uh, artists we're so attracted to food and there's like this whole arena of scholarship in our history and food that is undiscovered and untapped. And so I, I came across these Victorian photographs of women breastfeeding and women nursing. And it got me thinking about uh, the context of milk, cow's milk, breast milk, and I'm starting to think more about milk and motherhood. And so that's one potential topic. And then I'm also interested in the role of women and artists and temperance. A lot of women 
created temperance fountains, these sculptural fountains, as a way to encourage the consumption <coughs> of water over alcohol. And so I'm interested in the visual culture of motherhood, the visual culture of temperance, and recovering more women's voices in the history of art and food. So do you think that more women than men actually represented uh, food in their art? Or is that uh, maybe not true? Well, I wouldn't hit men against women in the way to say that, you know, they were doing more than men or men were doing more than women, more so that women were using food in such powerful ways to shape society. And for so long, we have focused on the men who have started food corporations or who have used food to write manuals or to grow and labor the food. When women are incorporating the food in cookbooks, they too are writing horticultural manuals. They are painting images of food. And so I think that women are using food in such profound ways to, to shape and contribute to society that it's a, a really great device for understanding women's histories that have been historically neglected. So what is your point of view of the nursing women that uh, you found those pictures on? So I have some personal experience with this. I have a newborn and <laughs> I can tell you that nursing is messy. It is unpredictable. It is laborious. And I would never want myself to be kind of memorialized in these photographs because it's hard work and it's not fun a lot of times. And so it got me thinking, why are these Victorian women staring straight at the camera, you know, with a child on the breast and with the limitations of the camera in the 19th century, they could not uh, capture quick movements. Women had to stand for long periods of time, which is hard to do also while nursing. There's just so many obstacles. And so it got me thinking, why are women wanting to memorialize themselves in these photographs breastfeeding? And I think it has a lot to do with changing images of motherhood and a cult of domesticity that's arising in the Victorian period. So it's something that's certainly relevant in my current lifestyle. And I'm interested in how Victorian women were negotiating debates about nursing in their time period. I think that the politics of nursing is enormously interesting. I know having these discussions with my mother, so I'm 70, so my mother was born in 1918, and she's passed now, but she breastfed me, and then I breastfed my children, and we used to have conversations about it, and of course, she was a real um, advocate of Dr. Spock, mm -hmm. and so he talked about putting babies on some kind of schedule, and oh, the schedule is the way to do it, and then when I was breastfeeding it was more on-demand feeding that was advocated and my mother was having difficulty with this change of attitude because oh, yeah. she thought it was so important that you have the child on this, this schedule which of course it's much easier to have a bottle and a schedule than it is to have um, right. a breastfed schedule you know but anyway she was breastfeeding at a time in the 50s when I think formula was really, really starting to come in and there was something kind of unseemly about breastfeeding and all of that that was really, really taking hold. And bottle feeding and formula was becoming more and more modern and scientific and clean and all of those things. And... I think it was because my mother 
was first generation child of Sicilians, that she was not embracing that modernistic position because in other ways, my mother was definitely a, a child of her time. And this, you know, she wore pants and she did all kinds of things like that that yeah, right. were supposed to do very early. And so it was, it was interesting to look back on that myself when I was breastfeeding about how my mother was, was able to reject that kind of modernistic, cleanliness, scientific thing that formula was supposed to represent. And it's right. Yeah. yeah, that history really speaks to me. I think our culture moves in waves. So previous to the Victorian period, breastfeeding was not very fashionable for middle and upper class women. It was relegated to enslaved women, to wet nurses, and to a lot of um, immigrant women are pictured nursing in American art. But then in the late 19th century, it becomes fashionable again for uh, middle and upper class white women to breastfeed their children. And then you have the invention of formula around the same time period as more women are entering the workforce. And then today, I think it's, you know, kind of made its comeback because, you know, the second I left the hospital, I see messages everywhere from my doctors and from brochures saying breast is best, right? There's a lot of pressure on mothers today to breastfeed. And like I say, the, it's not always easy. It's not always allowable if, you, if you're working or, you know, if you don't have a schedule at home. And so these are the kinds of conversations I'm really interested in exploring in a more historical context. And I have another theory about breastfeeding since that's what we're talking about right now. Yeah, go for that it. Is, that is another thing that I got from my mother and often you found in, in brochures was that you should eat only certain kinds of food because if you eat this or you eat that, it makes the baby colicky or it's, it, you know, it's, isn't good. And I all never adhered to any of that because that was just a big pain. You know, you can't eat sure. this, you can't eat that. Um, and I actually believe that if you introduce through breast milk, actually all these different flavors um, and uh, so that children can eat Brussels sprouts or they can eat all these things that maybe they might not take to that that's a good thing. And number two, I think that if you give a baby formula, and I definitely am not uh, politicizing this to say you, formula is bad, because I think there are lots and lots of reasons when formula is a godsend. Sure. Um, but formula tastes the same every time. And breast milk doesn't, because it changes because you eat differently every day and so it can i think a child can come to think that food has to taste the same all the time um if and then they'll reject something that is different if they've gotten accustomed to a formula that every time they feed it tastes the same and yeah i hadn't even considered that you're right that you know milk my milk looks different sometimes. Like it, I'm sure it tastes different too. And people talk about how there's maybe a high content of sugar in some formula brands. And so, uh, you know, these are things I'm all becoming aware of now. Well, you see, you are visual. 
So you're thinking, oh, it looks different, whereas I'm all about the taste. I'm <laughs> okay. not worried about it tasting different. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's funny. But yeah, you know, I think a lot about how, how images of, of milk, of water, you know, how they were, you know, trying to seduce audiences and how they were trying to be persuasive. So it all ties back to kind of an art historical look at these foods. Yeah. Well, I think that it's really, really fascinating. And um, I love the contextualizing of the art that you do because it's one of my pet peeves is when I go to an exhibit at a museum that is an art museum and the painting or the art is, first of all, it's very much venerated and, and set in a way that often gives you no context whatsoever. It's just, this is the name of the artist, this is the name of the piece, if it has a name. This is the date, this is, you know, the artist is from this place. And then there's a big part about donated by funds from the such and such a foundation or whatever, right. or exactly. our acquisition fund or whatever. And, uh, and that's it. And yeah. you don't have any context. And I find that really, sort of sad, especially when the art is um, not representational, so that you can't find your own context for it and it's very abstract or whatever. I mean, if you looked at the work of some of the people that were kind of bringing abstraction into art, if you didn't read about it, if you didn't know about it, or if you looked at um, Andy Warhol's cans of soup or whatever, without any kind of context, you would just not understand. And Absolutely. I think it's awful that there's not enough interpretation. So there are two camps of scholars. There's one camp that believes you should have minimal labels in a museum and that you should allow the viewer to interpret the work however they want and that art is really subjective. But then there's another camp that feels that you should have long labels in order to give the viewer and the visitor as much information as possible but also to, you know, encourage docent programming and train people to kind of walk people around the museum and explain the historical context. But in, in total, art museums really um, encourage people to kind of not be lazy when looking at a work of art, that you really have to use your imagination. You have to use all of your senses to try to explore and interpret that work of art. And then to kind of do your homework, you know, what does a Jackson Pollock mean? You know, do a little research perhaps before going to the museum which requires some labor, right? It's not just uh, gonna give you this aha moment if you see a work of art and you don't have a label explaining it to you. So but there are- it, it, I, I, I can't wait for you to finish. <laughs> John, go for it. I mean, if you go to a museum, it's not a particular, like if you went to a Jackson Pollock um, exhibition, mm -hmm. I can understand you might want to prepare before you go. But if you just go and you're looking at the general collection, you can't possibly have prepared to look at the variety of things that are in the museum or even necessarily know what's on display at that time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I am more in favor toward the longer exhibition labels. You know, in museum studies grad schools, they actually have word limits. Like you're not supposed to go past 135 words. It's been proven that people lose their attention span beyond 135 or some, some number like that. Um, but I think the context is so important to understanding works of art, especially abstract art, when many of those artists were actually trying to create works of art that were 
the most relatable, the most accessible to people. And that really gets lost without an interpretive label. I, and it may be, it may be partially that we just don't learn enough about art in school or whatever. I have always complained that we learn in school the names of shapes so that you know that this is a triangle and this is a cylinder and this is a trapezoid and all of that sort of thing. You learn your colors, you learn all kinds of things that deal with the visual world. But when you're learning about, you eat every day. Now, of course you see too every day. So I'm not trying to say that eating is something that you do more often than seeing. But we don't learn words or have any critical analysis of the food that we eat. We like it, we don't like it. It's yucky, it's good, but we don't really analyze it. And it's very difficult to help children find the words to describe those things. Whereas in a painting, you know, there's often, well, this forms a triangle and this does, you know, you can actually talk about the design because you have the vocabulary to do it. And I find we don't have the vocabulary for um, taste. Yeah, it absolutely requires a training, right? That's part of my mission as an art historian, as a professor, that I train my students to learn the language of how to describe and how to look at something. It's actually a lot harder to do than it seems. And I want students to feel comfortable when they walk into a museum because I do have a lot of students who are, you know, coming from low income backgrounds and who don't feel comfortable, who feel like they don't belong in a museum. And I find that especially works of art that involve food makes art a lot more relatable and approachable and that when they do see a Warhol soup can, you know, everyone can kind of relate to opening a can or, you know, eating canned foods. And so food is actually a great entry point for students to feel more comfortable in museums that have been historically these elitist spaces. So let's talk about your book just a little bit more. So tell me where you can get it. And uh, if people want more information, where can they go? Great, so the book is now available. It's published by the University of California Press. Academic books are tragically expensive. So I have a discount code that I can publicize on the Tip of the Tongue Facebook page, or you can find it on my Instagram page, which is The Fruits of Empire. And it's available now. And all royalties will be donated to the Coalition of Immokalee Farm Workers. So, you know, part of the mission of this book is to recover the voices that have been marginalized. That includes food workers and farm workers. And so this great organization that helps uh, boost the civil rights of our farm workers and employees is uh, going to benefit from the sales of this book. I think, I think it's just marvelous that you're, that you're, um, dedicating the, the royalties to to the book uh, to the organization. I, I think that is really really a lovely gesture. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was a fabulous conversation. The time went by in no time. So I'm so is, yeah. To, to talk. I had so much fun. Yeah, yeah, I had so much fun. Thank you so much. And you know maybe we can brainstorm ways to you know exhibit more images of food in the future. I, I think that would that would be a really good idea. Absolutely. So thanks so very much. Thanks, Liz.
Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.